Good morning, Friendship Church. My name is Pastor Jason. I'm the Adult Ministries pastor here, and I am really excited to be diving into God's Word this morning as we continue our series in Exodus, The Deliverer, a series we started uh, last week. Um, you, you may see that there are a few other folks on the stage still, and uh, that's because we're going to be reading uh, a larger chunk of Scripture this morning. We're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 3 and most of chapter 4, and so I've got some friends on stage that are going to help do that reading um, in a moment for us. Um, but I just wanted to set the stage for that reading first. You know, last week, Pastor Kenny introduced this idea as he introduced the series, this idea of types, of typology. A type is a shadow that may not paint the entire picture of Christ and his work, but it points us to him, and it, and it kind of predates it. And, and we saw how Moses was a type that pointed to Christ, specifically that Moses pointed to Christ as a deliverer, that God used Moses to deliver his people from slavery to the Egyptians. Just as Christ, who is God himself, is our deliverer from sin and death. And so the deliverance from the Egyptians is a type of the deliverance from sin and death that Christ does for us that it points to. It teaches us that God is a deliverer, and it teaches us in some ways how God delivers us. And so this morning, we get a chance, as we read in Exodus chapters 3 and 4, we get a chance to look at the instrument of God's deliverance, Moses. And we're going to look at some ways that God used Moses to bring salvation to his people, and then we'll draw some principles from that about how God might use us as his instruments of uh, redemption along the way. But to start that off, we are going to read the entirety of that story. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Exodus chapter 3. We're going to be reading chapter 3 through a good portion of chapter 4. And you can open up your Bibles there and get ready there. And then maybe put your finger in that or a placeholder or a ribbon or a bookmark or whatever you have. Because I'd love to encourage you um, to just sit there and hear the words, and, and if you feel comfortable enough to close your eyes and picture the scene as it's unfolding, just as a way to engage in the reading of Scripture. Joel's going to be reading the voice of God, so don't be surprised by that when God enters a story, and it's actually Joel's voice. Um, Michael B. Kelly is going to be reading the voice of Moses, and Autumn is going to be reading the narration, the narrator. And so with that introduction, I'm going to hand it off to the scripture readers and encourage you to just take it in. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Moses. Moses. Here I am. Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. 
I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry, for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. What is that in your hand? A staff. Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. 
So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. And behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take your hand, and take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs." Word of the Lord this morning. Thank you for reading that with us. Hopefully, you were able to picture a little bit the scene that was unfolding as God appeared to the instrument that He was going to use uh, to deliver His people out of Egypt, to deliver His people out of slavery. There's a lot going on there. Okay, we can't we can't go verse by verse or line by line there this morning. Um, and so there's a few things we're going to pull out from this story uh, about how God uses his instruments for his redemptive purposes. That's kind of the question that we're going to answer. How does God use humans? How does God use human vessels for his redemptive purposes? As we answer that question, we're, we're going to see kind of how God works in and through Moses and then we will draw some parallels to see how he may be calling us uh, to work in and through us for his redemptive purposes. So that's the major question we're answering today. And as we begin to answer that, the first thing that we see kind of right off the bat is God comes down. And we can see that in chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, you can be open to that. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And it kind of bleeds into verse 8. As well, we see there in verse 2 that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And uh, right before that, at the end of chapter 2, we're told that God had seen and that he had known the affliction that his people were enduring. And so what God does here in chapter 3 after seeing what they're enduring is God comes down. He appears to Moses from the holiness of of heaven, from, from the splendor of the heavens, God condescends. He comes down from on high. And, and he does this in, in a gracious way. This is, this is a mighty act of God's grace for him to come down in such a way. 
Because his pure holiness, as we see when we look at the burning bush and God tells Moses, remove your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. And, and the, this idea of God's holiness connected with fire, we only see one other time in Exodus. And it's when the Israelites finally make it out of Egypt and they're worshiping God on the mountain and there's a pillar of fire and, and they're uh, glorying in God's holiness. And so what's going on here is the fire is a great representation, a manifestation of God's holiness. And so we see that God and his holiness comes down. He brings that holiness down to earth. And fire is a great picture for it because God's holiness is so fierce that it consumes and refines and burns up everything around it that is not holy, that is unholy, that is unclean. The fire consumes Yet, when God comes down, when God uh, approaches Moses, Moses sees the bush that's burning, but it's not being consumed. And that's a miraculous act of God's grace that's happening right before Moses. Because God has condescended. He has come down in a way where his holiness is absolutely maintained. He doesn't give up his holiness, yet somehow... In our impurity and in our weakness and in our sin, God's holiness does not consume us. That's an act of God's grace. From his holiness, God stoops down in a way that he can meet us. And notice how it all starts with God. How does God use his instruments for his redemptive purposes? It starts with God initiating Moses is just minding his own business here. He's, he's tending some sheep out in the wilderness. You know, Moses doesn't go to God saying, I'm going to be your vessel, God, and here's what you're going to do through me. Sound like a good plan? That's not what he does. It, it's never really a good way to approach God. Uh, to say, hey, God, you're going you're gonna to use me, and you're going to use me in this way. Right? Because... When we do that, if, if we do that, we're telling God, hey, you need to align your will with my will, not the other way around. And i got something I can offer you. I'm going to work out of my own strength and out of my own sufficiency, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some, wait till you see what I've got for you, God. Not a good way to approach God. God initiates. He comes down. By his grace, in, in our impurity, in our sin, in our suffering, in our weakness, uh, we're, we're, not, uh, we're not consumed by him. Instead, God meets us where we're at. And, and look at verse 8. I love the imagery in verse 8 and how it really points to Christ. Look there. It says, uh, God tells Moses, I have come down to deliver my people and bring them up. It's God stooping down as Christ came from heaven, down from heaven, stooping down, died on the cross in order that when he was raised from the dead, he could raise us up from the dead as well. God coming down, stooping down to lift us up as well. That's good news this morning. Right? Amen? That is good news this morning that God initiates, that God comes down. That's where we start. When we ask this question of uh, how does God use his uh, instruments for his redemptive purposes, we start with this reminder that it's God who initiates. It's, it's never us. It's not the instruments. It's not the vessels. It's God whose will it is. It's God who starts it all. 
God initiates. He comes down. As we move on, we learn something else. We see also that God cares, that God is compassionate. And we see that in verses 7 to 9. When God comes uh, to use a human or earthly vessel for his redemptive purposes, it's because God cares. Now, you've probably heard that before. God loves me. God cares. But I just want you to sit on that for a second. Like, like really, God cares. Did you know? Did you, did you know, really know this morning that God cares about your suffering? The sins that we've committed that have brought suffering into our lives, God cares about that. The sins that have been committed against us that have brought suffering into our lives, God cares about that. The, the world is fractured and broken and sinful and fallen because of sin and that brings suffering, and God cares deeply about that. See, we're, we're oppressed to sin in every way apart from God. And sin has absolute control over our lives apart from God. And I want to remind you this morning that God cares deeply about that. He cares so much about that that Philippians 2 tells us that Christ emptied himself. He left the glory of heaven to stoop down, to come down and live in the muck and in the mess in order that he may lift us up into new life and out of slavery to sin. God cares. Verse 7, God says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. Now, in Hebrew, the way to say I have surely seen is you just repeat the verb. And so really that's his seeing. I've seen it. Like, I've really seen it. I really have seen it. I've seen this thing over and over again. The oppression and the affliction of my people in Egypt. And I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land. And then just for good measure, uh, God reiterates in verse 9. I found this section to be highly repetitive. And the thing that keeps repeating is that God hears and God cares. In verse 9, God repeats it. Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. See, God hears, he knows, he cares. God knows you're suffering this morning, and he cares deeply about it. God comes down because God cares. It's what drives him to bring redemption. Now we're answering the question this morning of how does God use his instruments for his redemptive purposes? And if you're paying attention, hopefully you are, um, we haven't really answered that question at all, have we? How does God use his instruments for his redemptive purposes? Well, that's because it's, we needed to start with God. We needed to see who God is, what he's about, uh, because that's going to lay the groundwork then for how God actually goes about redeeming, restoring, and using his instruments to accomplish his redemptive purposes. And that's the third thing that we see. We finally see the rubber hitting the road here after we see that God cares and that causes him to come down. We see then... Here's where God brings in and draws in 
his instruments for his redemptive purposes. God then calls. And this is where we're going to kind of camp for the rest of the morning. It's where the rubber meets the road. It's where the instruments come in to play when God calls. Because a call requires a response. Okay? You, ever, you ever get a call from like spam risk or unknown? Anybody get those? Five, six, ten times a day? Just so you know, ignoring those is a response. You're saying, yeah, I'm just going to put that back in my pocket or leave it on my desk or hit the end call button. You could pick the phone up and say, hey, what's, what are you trying to sell me on? Or what kind of information are you trying to steal from me? Well, I don't know. Play some cell phone roulette. But a call requires some form of a response. Sometimes we may respond to God by ignoring him. A la Jonah when he runs away the other direction. Sometimes we respond to God by saying, no, not for me, not going to do it. Sometimes we respond to God by saying, yeah, okay, game on. But a call requires a response, and and so God comes down, he initiates. It's because God cares, and those things draw him then to call folks into following him, to call people into his redemptive purposes to be used by him. And we see God call uh, Moses in verse 10. You can look there, chapter 3, verse 10. God tells Moses, so go, go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh so that you can bring my people out of Egypt. And then in in verses 14 to 18, we can see specifically what God has called Moses to do. He's not not just sending him off on this, like, oh, go figure it out. He he lays it out uh, line by line. Look at verse 14 and on. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And God continues after that as well. But see, he, he lays out specifically to Moses, I'm calling you, go to Pharaoh. Here's what you're going to do. Go to the Israelites, tell them this. Go to the elders, tell them that. Y'all are going to go to Pharaoh, and you're going to do this thing. Now, God doesn't call us in the exact same specific way that he calls Moses. Moses had a very unique calling, right? most of us are not called to be the prince of Egypt and have a, an animation movie about us and um, to lead God's people through the Red Sea. Most of us don't get that call. But there are parallels that we can draw to see how does God interact with Moses? How does God call Moses? What principles are at play here? And how might God be calling us to respond to him this morning? And so that's uh, what we're going to do. Look at, let's look at Moses' response to the call in verse 
11. When we respond to God's call, uh, we can learn some things here from Moses. So God calls Moses' response, our response, I'm, in, I'm insufficient. I mean, right there in uh, chapter 3, verse 11, who, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? I'm, I'm a nobody. Like, God, do you know who you're talking to? Like, I'm just tending sheep, and, and these sheep aren't even my sheep. I don't, I don't even have my own sheep. These are Jethro's sheep. What am I doing out here in the wilderness? Why are you coming to me? Do you know who you're talking to, God? I'm insufficient. Have you ever felt not up to the task for something? Yeah? I think there's probably several of you who feel like the, the Vikings may feel not up to the task later today. At least during the playoffs. That's nice. Moses is like, I'm no, I'm, I can't do this, God. In chapter 4, verse 1, Moses says, and you know what? No one's going to believe me, God. Again, like, you, you probably saw what happened back there in Egypt when I killed that guy, and then they didn't really like me. And No one's going to believe me. And then in verse 10, he, he protests that uh, probably something many of, many of us in this room uh, would probably say, like, have you heard me public speak before God? Like, I'm one of those people where it's like, don't give that guy a microphone, please. I'm a train wreck, God. I'm insufficient. God's response to this is remarkable. Chapter 3, verse 12. Look at God's response. God tells Moses, I will be with you. And it's been, like, it's been like this the whole story. If we were reading close enough, if Moses was listening close enough, back in verse 8, God told Moses what God himself was going to do. God said, I'm coming down. I'm going to redeem my people from Israel. God already said that he's the one who's going to do it. So when God tells Moses in verse 10, hey, go, go to Pharaoh, what God's telling Moses is, I'm going to do this thing through you. You're not doing it. I'm doing it. I'm just, you're just a piece of the puzzle here. I'm going to use you. To go to, I'm, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to make this thing happen, Moses. It's not going to be up to you. Don't worry. I'll be with you. God's doing this thing through Moses. And because it's God working in a miraculous way through a, a flawed human vessel, if we read on into verse 13, it will result in praise. If you see that in verse 13, God says, Once you experience my presence working through you in power, my people will come to this mountain. And, and some translations say serve, but it could also say my people will worship me. When, when God works miraculously through us, that's what, he's, that's what he's leading us towards. It's because we get to see God who can accomplish all things, work through flawed vessels, and bring something amazing about, and they'll worship God for it. It's about God's glory. Man, I, I'm with you, Moses, and, and I care about 
my glory being known, and I, I care about my holiness being known, and I care about being worshipped, and so I'm going to see this thing through to the end. I'm, I'm going to do it through you, Moses. It's not public speaking, whatever. I'm going to do this through you. You know, God made this same promise to us a few times in, in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, when Jesus sends his disciples out to be his witnesses, and he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And he, he gets to the end and he says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's not sending them out to do it on their own. He's with us to empower us. Acts 1 says the same exact thing. Acts 1, 8, behold, you will, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses, to be my instruments for redemption, to be my instruments for deliverance. I will be with you. God's presence, his very presence itself is what makes us sufficient. To respond to God and think, I'm insufficient, God, that's actually a good place to start. It's way better to say that than to say, yeah, I got this, God. Thanks for the mission. I'm on it. We'll, see, we'll connect in a few months. God's presence makes us sufficient. God's presence makes us sufficient to overcome sin and temptation. God's presence makes us sufficient to faithfully fulfill the roles that he has called us to in our homes, at our jobs, in our church, in our communities. God's presence is what makes us sufficient to do those things for his glory. God's presence is what makes us sufficient to share the gospel and to be his witnesses, to be an instrument for his redemptive purposes. And here's how God goes about doing that. Jesus is ultimately the one who accomplishes all of God's purposes for salvation. Right? It's a Sunday school answer. Well, how does God work in the world? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus does it. Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, and offered himself as the perfect sacrifice to God so that he could, right, God coming down, God caring, so that he could then call us so that he could call us to this new life, so he could wash away our sins and unite us to him by faith, so that we could be raised to a new life free from sin. We're, we're called to that by God. So then, if we put our faith in Jesus, one of the miracles that happens through our faith in Christ, through being united in Christ, is that God works through Jesus in us for his redemptive purposes, right? Because Primarily, most people who put their faith in Jesus heard it from somebody else here on earth. And so God uses individuals with Christ at work in them for his redemptive purposes. When we receive God's grace, that's what we receive. His promise that he will be with us to empower us and equip us and make us sufficient for everything else that he will call us to do. And now it's Christ in us. It's the Holy Spirit empowering us as God's vessels to bring the message and the power of the gospel to the ends of the earth. God doesn't call us to do something for him. He calls us so that he can do those things through us. And when we decide to say, you know what, I'm going to take this call seriously. I'm going to listen to you, God. I'm going to answer. I'm going to step out in faith. 
I want to offer you some confidence that we have when, when, when we respond to God's call. Absolute confidence to do this. The first thing that, that we can see from this passage is that when, when we reflect on who God is, that God came down, that he's holy, and, and, and that God cares, that he's compassionate, that frees us to say yes to his call. Because when we see God's holiness, when we, when we genuinely behold God's perfect holiness, that reminds us and it shows us that what God calls us to is right. What God calls us to is good. He's not calling us to something meaningless. He's not calling us to something futile. He's not calling us to something that's not good. He's calling us out of his holiness to good things that are worth investing in and that are worth answering the call for, right? It's, you know, it's not seeing a spam risk number, but it's seeing a, a number. Maybe it's the lottery calling you, and you're like, oh, I'm going to answer that call for sure. That's not how they do the lottery, is it? It'd be kind of nice. We also have absolute certainty to respond to God's call because we know God cares. Because his compassion means that he cares about our hurts and our cares deeply. And he cares about making those things right. You ever find yourself in a work situation or a family situation where it's difficult to, to invest energy and time because you, you, you think you're being used or because you think that, that the person who you're interacting with doesn't really care about you or doesn't really care about the things that you care about? You ever feel like that? God cares deeply. It's holiness, His holiness and His compassion gives us confidence to answer when He calls us. We have more certainty to answer because God proves his sufficiency to work through us. You ready? You want to hear a, a major proof text for this one? God proves his sufficiency to work through us. Verses uh, 14 and 15 in chapter 3 says this. I am who I am. Say to the people, I am has sent you. Moving on. You see how that uh, proves God's sufficiency, right? How does that prove God's sufficiency? When God says, I am. God says, I am who I am. Because God is, everything that God wills exists. Because God is, he's the very essence of being, he's the very essence of existence, he's the very essence of volition, because God is, all that God wills exists. So when God reveals himself as I am, he's saying a lot of things. One of the things he's saying is that what I will will come to fruition. Genesis 1, God said, let there be light, and there was light. What God wills exists because he is. This gives us confidence to answer God's call on our lives because I'm insufficient. I'm not well-spoken. I'm too prideful. I've got too much baggage. I don't know enough theology. I'm not trained. I, I can't do that, God. I can't be a witness for you, Jesus. Yes, we're insufficient, but God is sufficient. 
There's no shortcoming that I am, the very essence of existence, cannot overcome. If he wants to overcome it, he is. He will. He also proves his sufficiency to work through us, through the miraculous works that he does. I've always been somewhat troubled by the beginning of chapter 4, where Moses needs some convincing. And well, how does God convince him? I'm going to turn your staff into a snake. And it says Moses literally fled the other way. Okay, Moses, okay, fine. Put your hand in your cloak and pull it out. Is it leprous? Gotcha! It's like, is that going to convince Moses to... I mean, it's God. He knows what he's doing, but... I think part of what, what it shows is that God can undo those things. So it turns into a snake, and God says, grab it. See, I've got control over this. Even if things go awry, even if I make things go awry, I'm going to control it. Even if your hand turns into a leprous skin condition, put it back in, take it back out. I got this. I'm going to control it. When we get further down into Exodus, we'll see the magicians in Egypt. They can, they can replicate some of what God does. Oh, I'm going to send a bunch of frogs. And the Egyptians are like, oh, you can send frogs? We can send frogs too. And it's like, no, guys, please don't. We, we got enough frogs, all right? Stop. They can't undo what God does. See, but God can because he is. He proves his sufficiency to work through us. We have absolute certainty when we respond to God's call because he comes and he cares because I am proves he is sufficient to work through us. And we have absolute certainty to respond to God's call because God fulfills his promises. In verses uh, 3.19 to uh, chapter 4, verse 9, God tells Moses exactly what he will do to accomplish his purposes. In, in, in 317, he says, I promise I will bring you out of Egypt. And then we read the rest of Exodus, and we see that God did exactly what he promised. And you need to know that what God promised was bonkers. There is no other word to describe God's promise here. Okay, back, back in the ancient Near East, we're talking, think Wild West on steroids in the ancient Near East here, okay? The Assyrians who lived in this time, they had a foreign policy that they were known for. It was called, impale as many people as we can and leave them sitting there. And then people will do what we want, okay? And the philosophers said, look, if you are powerful enough to overcome your neighbors, they deserve to be your slaves. This is the world that the Israelites lived in, and they were slaves to the Egyptians. Now God's promise to the Israelites is, I'm gonna lead you out. You're going to go to Pharaoh, Moses, and you're going to tell him, hey, uh, you, you, you got us before and you've enslaved us. We're going we're gonna to go worship our God, the God that you don't know. Um, and so, you know, production's going to stop for a little bit. We're going to be out worshiping him. Okay, we'll see you later. Okay. God says that he will accomplish this thing. And the miracle is there's no loss of life in this. This wasn't a slave rebellion. This wasn't a war. This wasn't a battle. It was simply God acting. Do you see how bonkers this promise is? Yet he made good on it. God fulfills his promises, and that gives us absolute 
confidence to respond when God calls us, no matter what it looks like, no matter what he puts on our hearts, no matter who he calls us to or what he calls us to. It could be bonkers. God fulfills his promises. And so we have absolute confidence to answer his call. And that leaves us with our final question. How will you respond to God's call on your life to be an instrument for his redemptive purposes? God calls all of humanity to respond to his grace in Christ Jesus. God calls every single one of us to say, yeah, I'm insufficient. Yes, I'm a sinner. And if I put my faith in Christ Jesus and in his death and resurrection, then I can know and live new life free from sin, free from the power and the punishment of sin. I can live in that life. And so first and foremost, if you have not responded to that call, that's where we start, where God initiated and offered salvation to us. And if you have responded to that call this morning, God calls us to deeper things. He calls us to enter into the community that he's placed us in, to enter into fellowship with one another. Maybe that's what God is calling you to this morning, that you're disconnected and you need to be connected both so that you can be encouraged in your faith and built up, but also so that you can build up the church body here. We need it in a mutual way. What if God is calling you this morning to use your gifts and your experiences? And that can be a scary thing because the stuff that we do, the stuff that we're talented at, the things that we may want to offer... our, sometimes our identity is tied to that. And if I offer that and it doesn't go really well, well, I'm kind of scared to do that. Well, if God's calling you to offer your gifts, your experiences, your time, you've got absolute certainty to say, yeah, God, I'm going to respond to you this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's going to bring you glory. And so, yes, I say yes. And God calls us to allow Jesus to work through us so that in both word and deed we can be instruments of God's uh, redemptive purposes and so that with our lives, with our words, we can invite those around us into the salvation and be an instrument of deliverance and into the new life that Christ is offering. How will you respond to God's call on your life to be an instrument for his purposes? I'm going to pray for us and give us some time as we sing and respond to reflect. God, we thank you so much for initiating, for coming down, for caring, and for calling us. God, we pray that we would have sensitive hearts that respond to your call. We repent of the times where we don't place our faith in you, where the call seems too much, or we seem too insufficient, and we don't trust in your goodness. We don't trust in I am. We repent of that. And we want to be obedient and we want for you to work in us and through us so that we would become the individuals and the families and the church that you would have to use us for your redemptive purposes. We give ourselves to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. And so in this moment as we reflect and prepare for communion, I just want to encourage you to to make that prayer your own. To come before the Lord and first and foremost say, God, God, is there there sin I'm holding on to that I I need to repent of and confess? But also, is is there a way that you've been putting a call on my life and I've ignored it or said no? And I haven't trusted in you for that. I just encourage you to sit in that for a moment and reflect and see what God has for you. And then as you're ready, as we're singing in response, um, 
You can, you can come and uh, whichever table is closest to you, grab the elements and return to your seats. And then I'll lead us as we remember the Lord this morning together.